and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. We have some really good news to start the episode this week. You may have seen this in the Telegraph uh, over the weekend, but if not, there was an event at Bristol University last week organised by Women Talk Back, a feminist society there. Uh, And they had, over the course of four or five weeks of trying to organise this event with an absolutely stellar panel of uh, lawyers, including Akua Reindorf, Casey. Uh, they'd had the usual pattern of of delay, uh, of obstacles being put in their ways by student union, by the university. And then they had various quite onerous restrictions put on the event, including the banning of, of the public from attending. And this was all done by the university and the student union uh, because of this idea that the event was likely to trigger public disorder. Now, this was a panel of, I think, four lawyers. So the idea that these lawyers were going to cause any public disorder is, of course, a complete nonsense. What the university really is talking about is trans rights activists turning up and shouting down the event, or as we've seen at Edinburgh, stopping an event from going ahead. So the organisers have had weeks of this difficulty. They've had to move the event, and then they had a bill for security costs, which they couldn't afford to pay. Um, and you've got to think in terms of a student society budget, a bill for three or four hundred pounds for security is just beyond the means of many student groups. But thanks to a new initiative by the Free Speech Union, the McTaggart programme, we were able to step in and provide the security and venue costs and the event was able to go ahead, which it would not otherwise have done. Um, and so this is A really, really exciting way now in which the Free Speech Union can not just help people after they've been cancelled or are facing cancellation, but in which we can ensure these events are actually going ahead. Um, And so the programme is open now. We're accepting applications from student societies, from individual students, from academics for any initiative which is aimed at promoting free speech. So it might be an event, it might be a, a conference, you might want to have a debate or speakers come and address your society. Um, there's a huge range of things we can help you with. So the thing to do if you're interested in this, go to the Free Speech Union's website, go to the Contact Us page, and there's an email address, grantapplications at freespeechunion.com, where you can uh, find out more about the programme, you can contact us, and we can send you the, the brochure. So hopefully the tide is turning. Good news at Bristol. Obviously, the university shouldn't have been uh, imposing restrictions like this. We've written to the university to ask that these restrictions be lifted for the group's next event. Um, but an exciting way of fighting back against this particular cancellation tactic. I think it's fantastic, Ben, and it's, it's really good to have had the first use of that money. Reading the news this, this week, we were just talking about it, Ben, there's going to be far too much demand for it. Um, just looking at the transgender-related free speech issues that have cropped up since uh, last week, we, we were counting up, I think, to five or six. So as well as that um, Women Talk Back event, uh, which was great news, We've also had the Edinburgh film screening uh, that was that was cancelled for a second time. Um, we've had Wild Youth, which uh, is is a is a, a an Irish Eurovision entry. They have uh, uh, cancelled their manager this week. We've had um, uh, Joanna Cherry just hot off the press. She's been cancelled uh, from an Edinburgh Fringe event. Uh, and we've also had uh, uh, 
Dr. Stock, Dr. Kathleen Stock, who was invited to the Oxford Union, spark, her invitation sparking fury. So, I, I mean, we are going to have more than enough demand, I think, Ben, for the McTaggart Fund and all that, that that's going to do. And, and also, I don't know what you feel about how this, this complete tidal wave of transgender-related free speech issues, um, where that's come from and, and what that means and where that's going. Well, I think if you look at the public opinion polling, there is a marked difference um, comparing polls taken this year or last year with, say, in 2016, 2017, about issues around gender, self-identification and so on. So I think in terms of the public view of these issues, the particularly militant, censorious brand of trans rights activism that we've all now gotten used to is proving to be hugely counterproductive. It's not the way mm. to change people's minds. Changing people's minds is is the work of decades. Um, and I think in our lifetime, certainly with, with gay rights, public attitudes towards gay marriage and gay relationships have changed virtually 180 degrees in a matter of two or three decades. Um, and so you can change people's minds, but in democracy, it's it's hard work and it can take a long time and it requires engaging with people who uh, don't agree with you or perhaps don't like you very much and you might not like them very much. And it requires all this hard graft that trans rights activists have just been unwilling to undertake. And there's been this mantra of no debate. No debate has been... And I also think... Uh, I, I think back to something you said a few episodes ago, Ben, which is that the sort of level of trans rights activist activism that we're seeing is more a sign of a losing side than a winning side, um, resorting relentlessly to, I mean, for example, just, just go back to the Edinburgh film screening. That was cancelled in December. This was a screen, screening of the film Adult Human Female. That was cancelled in December 2022. It was going to be re-shown on the 26th of April, i.e. last week, and it was mobbed. And as a result, it had to be, it had to be cancelled. Um, but you know, some, some slight, some good news. I mean, let's, let's take the good news when it, when it comes is that there's state, there's quite a strong statement from the principal and the vice chancellor of Edinburgh saying, uh, we refuse to be intimidated by the unreasonable, includes the statement, we refuse to be intimidated by the unreasonable behaviour of those who sought to prevent lawful discussion of challenging topics on our campus yesterday. And I think even going back a few months, we might not have seen a university head or university authorities being quite so bold in, in actually standing back against this. So so I feel that it does relate to something you've said, said and discussed previously, Ben, which is that perhaps um, this is a sign of a, of a side that, that knows it's, it's started to lose. Um, and, and there are definitely sort of silver strands of hope within, within these news items, I think. The Edinburgh case is particularly interesting because I was looking through the disciplinary code after the the event had been stopped by protesters, I think, had got into the room uh, and for the second time, as you've said, ensured that it couldn't go ahead. And I was looking at the disciplinary code and it cites as misconduct, conduct which unjustifiably infringes freedom of thought or expression while on university premises or engaged in university work, study or activity. And lots of universities, we know this from our 
casework and from helping people, academics and students um, in the 2000 or so cases we've dealt with at the Free Speech Union. We know that many, many universities have lines like that in student disciplinary codes. And so it is, it's not just something that students ought not to do or should be asked not to do, but student protesters who behave in that way to the extent of stopping an event from going ahead are very often breaching the code of conduct they've signed up to as a member of their institution. Um, But I think there is an unwillingness to go down that route and universities thus far seem to be not not particularly keen on disciplining students properly whether that will now happen in this case at edinburgh i don't know well we saw the same at oxford we saw we saw with with dr kathleen stock i think we've seen the oxford authorities again stand up and say well this this is yet to happen it's going to be at the oxford union uh next month but again that the university authorities saying they're going to stand up to it but it's really curious trying to get behind the tactics of the transgender activists. It seems to me that it, on the on the Doctor Stock one, um, the uh, LGBTQ society was saying things like, "Oh well, thirtieth of May is just before Pride Month, so it's not in Pride Month. It's just before Pride Month." But that was a problem somehow. Um, and if we go back to what we talked about last week, it's very difficult not to be during a time in the year when there isn't something going on, a visibility day or a or a remembrance day of some kind. In fact, there's probably, I don't know, half a day, you know, a week on Tuesday when you could probably put it on and someone someone could say there's nothing else going on that day. It's just the weirdest thing to claim that the, the timing was an issue and this constant presumption as well of, of the mental vulnerability um, from groups within the university and not only that, not only saying, oh, well, you know, if Dr. Stock comes to speak to us at, at Oxford, at the Oxford Union on the 30th of May, um, not only will it affect LGBTQ plus students, but we want every student in Oxford to come and stand on our side. Um, again, this tactic of a very, a very extreme version of if you're not with us, you're against us. So you better show, you better show you're with us. And that kind of yeah. slightly threatening implication as well that we'll know if you don't come and stand with us. It's the sort of come and stand with us or else. What we've seen at Bristol is this grey area where the university is not cancelling the event, but they are delaying their replies to emails from the organisers by weeks they're imposing restrictions they're they're doing things that mean the venue have to be changed and then you have security costs that we talked about and so they mm. had this way of, of 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 almost having sort of pocket veto of an event to ensure that it just becomes so difficult to actually pull off an event like this it becomes so onerous on the organizers it becomes so unattractive a prospect to try and arrange a panel discussion of this nature which should be a normal part of university student life and and the students who've organized a panel of four top lawyers should be commended by the university for having done that that's not an easy thing to arrange um but instead the whole thing is treated as a as a problem or as a risk to be managed by the university um and they do have this sort of pocket veto power of imposing the security costs which as we discussed a moment ago many student societies simply can't afford but which we can help with but what we have seen in other cases is this this security costs argument being used selectively. And so there, there were cases where, for instance, uh, also at Bristol, a student society 
face a £500 security bill to allow the Israeli ambassador to come and give a talk. But for his Palestinian counterpart, there is no security cost imposed on the students. And so it's entirely selective as, as to who gets lumped with this bill. Um, and one of the things we've been working on behind the scenes, as well as helping societies where they have to foot the cost of something like this, um, is through the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill, a piece of legislation that is aimed at tackling council culture uh, on university campuses that the Free Speech Union has been campaigning for. Um, and that will say, thanks to uh, an amendment to the legislation, uh, that security costs cannot be passed on to student societies other than in exceptional circumstances. So that's another promising bit of bit of news. That is very good news. And of course, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, does it, Ben? Four hundred pounds, five hundred pounds. You think, oh, that that that's not. But these are very small student societies, and it's easy to forget when you're you're at university. You know, there's a subscription maybe of ten pounds for for members. Yeah. Four hundred pounds will, will will empty the bank accounts um, of the smaller societies, and mean as you say, it just doesn't make sense for the event to take place. Um, so I and think it, that is extremely good news. Sorry. I was just going to say, even for, even for the larger societies, so my interest in this and in free speech generally began when I was an undergraduate. Mm. Um, and I was the president of the University of Exeter's debating society. And we would have uh, four speakers, including external guests, every week on a Friday night for two terms. So there's a lot of organisation um, and a lot of money on travel costs, on hotels for speakers and all of these sorts of things. Um and if every one of those events we'd had to pay for bouncers to be on the doors, even a large established society that existed for a century and more would not have been able to afford that. It would have been prohibitive. And universities know that. Yeah, no, they do. And, and, and of course, the activists know that. The people who are trying to shut it down know that. And, and, the, and the, if the universities do impose the costs on the, on the organisation, that's another way of, of getting it stopped. Um, so you're right, the asymmetry of how these costs fall across the debate is, um, is just very it's suspicious. Yeah, what's really going on there? Why, why one side and not the other? Um, but again, again, looking for hope in the, in the midst of this, the, the other case of, uh, that related to transgender that happened in the last um, five or six days, uh, that of Wild Youth, the Irish Eurovision mm. Song Contest entry. And by the way, the Eurovision Song Contest is coming up this Saturday. Very excited about that. They still don't quite understand why Australia counts as Europe. Um, my geography is not what it was. But anyway, uh, the uh, the case here was the uh, obviously the Irish band Wild Youth uh, fired their creative director, Ian Bannum, after he'd been accused of transphobia for some of the things he'd said on Twitter and uh, basically the band then cut ties with Ian Bantham and said we're not having him anymore on our Eurovision journey but the feedback on Twitter that the comeback on Twitter was largely negative I think in the article I saw they looked at a hundred tweets that had come back following that uh, action on on the part of the band and 98 of the tweets were negative saying you've done the wrong thing um, you shouldn't shouldn't be doing this you shouldn't be cancelling your creative director in this way, in this way, um, and J.K. Rowling tweeted in, you know, saying that again, this so-called kindness and inclusivity coming from the band is actually uh, barely disguised misogyny. So, so you know, maybe there's some some hope there for free speech that that the the reaction 
to to what what had happened uh, with that Eurovision entry was largely you know negative on Twitter and and on the side of let 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 him let him carrying on being the creative director. And this is, I'm right in saying that this was because it was their creative director, wasn't it? And he had misgendered a a criminal, wasn't it? Was it was it a a, a, a convicted rapist who? That's right. It was, yeah. And he'd referred to this rapist as a man. And that was deemed to be transphobic. It's, it's another example of what we, what we've talked about um, before. And again, it's another example of this tactic, I think, or, or rather it, yes, it's a tactic, I think from, from some of the transgender activists, but also one that's very easy to bring in a lot of other people, which is the whole, let's be kind uh, phenomenon. And and so the band obviously, naively I suspect, wanted to be kind, wanted to do the right thing. Um, but what happened, of course, is that the sort of there's a fist behind the be kind uh, statement. It's be kind or else. It's a very coer- coercive way of controlling speech. You know, if like if in yeah. the way they say be kind, whichever activist we're talking about, what they're really saying is is shut up. Um, because we want to control your speech, and by controlling your yeah. speech, we control reality. Um, and and so, you know, again, I, I get a sense that um, there's a lot of naivety and a lot of what I what I call uh, useful idiots that get caught by by some of these things that seem so reasonable. Oh, come on, yes, I want to be kind. I like dogs, I like cats, and I want to be kind generally. Yeah. Uh, and it's a trick. It's a trick. Because it brings in and it enables the useful idiots to, to 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 do more of this cancellation. It sounds to me like they've been so open-minded that their brains have fallen out, which is not my joke. Really. <laughs> That's what we used to say. <laughs> and, and, and we used to joke about it, but it really has now happened uh, that, you, you know, oh, I'm really open-minded. I really want to be kind. I really want to, to keep my... Uh, options open and and of course that that includes a lot of very unsavory options uh with 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 um consequences that are themselves unsavory as well um so again depressing to have yet another news item uh on 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 the transgender and the free speech around transgender issues but really quite hopeful that the reaction was on the side of free speech sorry ben so it's just one of the things I was going to pick up. So we've had all of these these cases in the news in the last four or five days, which is not atypical, it must be said, uh, of people being criticised for their views about the trans debate. But one thing that really uh, wound me up this morning was looking at the BBC's report about the uh, the cancellation of Joanna Cherry, the SNP MP and uh, lawyer. And she'd been cancelled from an event at uh, an event on the Edinburgh Fringe and the BBC headline says Joanna Cherry says she has been cancelled in inverted commas over gender views. But what's going on here? She she didn't say she's been cancelled. The venue said she'd been cancelled and posted a statement, a, a very sloppy statement to my eye, on Twitter about it. And yet the BBC, in this very insidious way, is suggesting that there's something grey or murky, something that's ambiguous or unclear about this situation, that perhaps Joanna Cherry is not being entirely forthcoming in this case, or that she's perhaps exaggerating it slightly in some way, when the facts are absolutely plain. But it's just this subtle 
undermining of what of what she said and of your your own sense of what's happened. It would be so easy to scan over that headline and mm-hmm. to emerge with a completely misinformed and contrary impression of of what's actually happened. And of course, the BBC can defend what it what its headline says because presumably Joanna Cherry does say that she's been cancelled. Yeah. Uh, it's not it's not factually incorrect. It's just a uh, really missing a rather large fact that that um, the truth of it has been stated by the venue itself, uh, which is a rather more important point to draw out in the venue. So again, uh, sorry, in the headline. So again, it, it, it's that as you say, slightly insidious way in which which stories get picked up by the mainstream media, which stories do not get picked up by the mainstream media. And then secondarily, how do the stories that do get picked up get positioned, get headlined, and get commented upon? And of course, as you say, if you are not watchful like a hawk as to what that what's really going on there, which what what what's being picked on to report on, what's being picked on not to report on, and then how is it being reported? Um, you're going to get completely the wrong picture. And it becomes another version of that propaganda, effectively, you know, the sort of unthinking way of trying to push a message through any vehicle, whatever article that might be on the, on, you know, whether it's the BBC or, or another mainstream outlet. It, it's, it's very insidious. I mean, we'd like to think we're, we're awake to it. And perhaps we are, and, and our listeners probably are very awake to it. Uh, I think they're they're very alert to the free speech issues. The great concern, of course, is is the large part of the population who still watch the mainstream media, like the BBC, and that's fine. You know, that's great. It's really important that we have a good, reliable mainstream media. But they're not a, they're not necessarily tuned in to that sort of thing that's happening on some of these very very important free speech issues. I think the BBC still has the prestige of what it was, and, and certainly for older generations, there's still the habit of watching the six o'clock news, um, and it, it's still able to uh, behave with with, with with that authority, and it's still responded to with that with that sense of, of of prestige and reliability. But I think every time it it does something like that, something that that's just slightly misleading, that gives mm. you a slightly false impression what is left of that prestige is being sapped away. And what you find, I think, is if you know, if you happen to know something about a story from other sources or you've seen something on Twitter, you've seen the statement put out by the venue on Twitter yourself, for, for example, um, and then you encounter the BBC headline, a little bit of that prestige is just knocked away because you will know that, in fact, uh, Joanna Cherry is not just claiming this has happened. It has happened. <laughs> And and there's always context missing in in reporting, even on a, you know in a financial context. If I'd been working on and I probably had a couple of these cases over the years, a big financial deal that hits the press, and I've been working on it for months, I know everything about it inside and out. I will read the article and think, eh, you kind of missed the point there, but I get it. You got the salient points out. Um, that's not quite right. And but you very quickly scan it and think, oh, okay, not a bad job, could have done better. Um, and you recognize how difficult it is to get all the facts right, because you don't have the time to have lived it for two months. Um but this is something a bit different to that. This isn't just saying, oh, you haven't um you you know, you you've slightly mis- you've slightly misunderstood that. 
Mm. Um, and that's okay. It doesn't spoil the thrust of the story. This is a little bit more insidious, I think, um, where, where headlines and, and, and positioning of articles is, uh, is made to, to point in a particular direction. Um, well, we have another happy outcome in the news, don't we? Um, which is the case mm. of Maureen Martin. Do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I was, uh, Pleased, yeah, and again, this is uh, something that pops up over the weekend and really nice to see another piece of good news. So Maureen Martin, uh, she ran as a candidate for the Christian People's Alliance in April 2022 to become the mayor of Lewisham. While she was campaigning, she published a leaflet and that leaflet was posted to the borough's registered voters in Lewisham. And it included a six-point plan in part of her candidacy and her third point of her plan said that she wanted to cut through political correctness and state the truth that natural marriage between a man and a woman is the fundamental building block for a successful society and the safest environment for raising children. Now, this got jumped on by LGBTQ folk who then made a complaint to her employer. Uh, she worked in property for, for a company called L&Q, and they summoned her to a, the, the, her employer summoned her to an investigation meeting. It turned out there'd only been three complaints. However, as we've seen and talked about before, Maureen Martin ultimately lost her, her job. And But thankfully, she sued L&Q, her employer, her ex-employer, sued them for unfair dismissal, discrimination and harassment, and she's won substantial damages. This was the Christian legal centre that did this. So this is, this is great news that she went through that process, a very painful process, and has come out the other end uh, having succeeded. But, uh, you know, she should never have, 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 have had to have, to have gone through that process in, in the first place. And apparently, you know, at heart in this case was the priority of this, this thing we've talked about before, the sort of priority of protected characteristics. So on the one hand, you have the LGBT um, party saying, you know, uh, that uh, being... Um, uh, that, that talking about talking against gay marriage uh, is is beyond the pale. You know, you can't you can't do that. You can't say that it, marriage is only between a man and a woman. And 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 the the LGBT side is saying that's not on. On the other side, you've got religious belief, orthodox religious belief, her Christian beliefs that that actually uh, marriage is between a man and a woman. And you've got this conflict. And her employer throughout was saying, oh no the LGBT trumps the religious belief. And, and, and that curiosity has, in this instance at least, has been sort of blown apart and religious belief is still allowed, thank goodness. But the strange thing I find, Ben, is how it can be that an employer is even in court or in sorry, the, sort of the tribunal saying, uh, um, no, you know, Religious religious beliefs don't matter as much as your beliefs around gay marriage. I find that weird that private companies now have that ingrained in their DNA. If you'd said 10 years ago or 11 years ago when gay marriage was being debated that somebody would lose their job for campaigning on a platform of protecting what she has called natural or traditional marriage mm. and that you could be sacked for that, I think you you would somebody making that point not not just have been condemned as as being a fantasist or a scaremonger or, or making up a ludicrous far fetched scenario that would never happen, and yet just ten years later, 
dissenting yeah. from an issue that that was of genuine and heated controversy um and which really split opinion at the time that yeah. dissenting from it now just 10 years later is something that that can see you dragged through the employment tribunal and mm. losing your job and and this is someone who's not not just you know not just saying these things at work but is campaigning to be a politician as a candidate in an election to say this um it's just extraordinary. Just ten years that that's that's the position we're now in. It feels like two minutes. It really does. And uh, uh, you know, certainly, I I think it is partly this idea that well, if you don't agree with me in the old days, you know, ten years ago, two minutes ago, you would say, let's agree to disagree. Yeah. Now, if you don't agree with me, you're beyond the pale. You're a bad person. And somehow that that way of looking at politics that way of looking at one side and another side one view and another view has entrenched itself in private companies so that management even are saying yeah if you don't believe this then you must be on the other side and you believe that and that yes. means you're a bad person and you don't deserve to to have your job your your you know your way of making a living for goodness sake um so there's that kind of if you don't agree with us you're a bad person and secondly fine I, I would I normally in any other circumstance a facebook argument or whatever call me a bad person that's fine i don't mind i can still get on with my life but if you take my job away from me i can't put bread on the table so it's this this kind of commingling of the goodies and the baddies being being very stark and also by the way we're going to take your, your actual job away from you um yeah. so yeah it's 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 bizarre that we got to this stage but it's great news that we are we, we're seeing these these as we say you know these these little nuggets of success that we need to build on yeah uh, it feels like the just that erosion of the ability to conscientiously object to dissent from the the great homogenization the uh, the all-encompassing progressive woke mission that permeates everything mm. now mm. um high culture to low politics civil service healthcare and so on and it always strikes me that if you're going to go into the fight wade into the fight the people who can do that are the ones who are either they don't for whatever reason they don't need to worry about losing their job yep. um or they're extraordinarily courageous um you know and i think i think one thing that's always struck me is that if you're going to go in, wade into the fight, wade into it with your eyes open. And, and something I, I remember Harry Miller saying at a talk I was at, was not everyone can be an activist. Not everyone can, can go through what, you know, Maureen Martin's gone through here and come out intact on the other side and, and not too damaged. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's a hard thing to say, I'm going to go in and have the fight. And, I feel for the people who, who just have to put their head under the parapet and continue to keep their head under the parapet. Um, yeah. But, you know, whatever we can do in whatever way we can, uh, let's let's do it. And, and again, it comes back to the, the power of the free speech union, I think, or the power of the groups, whichever group it, it might be, um, getting together and, and saying, actually, there's another way of looking at this. There's another way of doing this. And actually, as we've gone through all of that, Ben, we've talked about uh, the BBC – uh, and we've talked about private employers. I thought it might be quite fun to talk today about uh, some of the data we have in our own case uh, uh, system. So every 
every quarter, what I like to do is pull together some and summarize for you, Ben, actually, because you're a mm. deputy director of the uh, of the case team. I like to pull together stats for you and show you what's happening in our case data. And one of the things we we rather like like to pull together is what we call the naughty list, those most most occurring numbers of other parties. So we talked about the BBC, for example. The BBC is indeed on the naughty list. It is um, amongst things that are not universities or police forces or obvious kind of uh, government departments. Uh, BBC is is our number five. We've we've had, and we'll only talk about cases where we've had more than five cases because we don't want to, um, and we won't broach any um, confidentiality of people who who are you know we're working for. Uh, and, and and defending but yeah the bbc is up there as fifth on one of our lists um and what surprises me is that if i look at what i would think of as the cultural uh heights of the united kingdom um they're on the list so the bbc we talked about uh the church of england's on the list yeah. Uh, the Conservative Party is on the list. The Football Association is on the list. I don't know what you feel, Ben, when you look at that list and realise institutions that we think of as beloved British institutions that are about, you know, propagating British culture uh, in whatever form are now on our list of um, folks that are shutting people down and, and trying to, to reduce free speech. Well, it pains me to see on our list of universities that Exeter is number three with mm. 10 cases. Bronze medal. Bronze medal. Yeah, which uh, is, is very displeasing because it always used to be very sensible. Um, yeah. And then Durham with an astonishing 24 cases. Of the top, <laughs> which is utterly astonishing. Uh, followed them by Cambridge, Exeter, Oxford, and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, th- this, is a, this is a list of ancient institutions in some cases or, or venerable mm. institutions of, of British public life. And they've all been captured or subverted and, and overtaken by this agenda and bitterly yeah. engaged in suppressing people who don't agree with it. Um, so it, 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 there's something very dispiriting about it. But the other way to look at it perhaps would be to say, well, actually, this isn't just a list of the most prolific cancellers this is also a list of of the number of people in each of these institutions who still have some common sense and who are still willing to speak their mind and say well you might think that that's fine but lots of us i love your optimism ben and i think i think i think if i was to uh, if i was to i'm i'm struggling with that optimism I, i i do i do see what you're saying you are saying that um yeah, that those at the top of the list have the most cases because people have dissented. But I, I, I struggle to switch it around. And we didn't mention the NHS, for example. That's the, um, yeah. you know, the NHS is is there because it's got so many people trying to shut people down and and quash free speech. And I don't know whether it's there because it's got so many brave people. Every person on our list, though, who has come to us is a brave person. That don't hear me. Don't hear me wrong there. I just feel that the none, not one of those people would have wanted to be in that situation, obviously, um, and they've been forced to be brave. Uh, I mean, I get depressed that number two is my university, University of Cambridge. Uh, now, we have added up all the colleges there, 
So maybe that's fair or maybe that's not fair. But yeah, the ancient institutions here are, are the ones that we are seeing at the top of our list. Uh, and in terms of social media platforms, we've got um, <laughs> third, we've got YouTube. Second, we've got Facebook. And then we've got Twitter right at the top. Uh, again, unsurprising. It's the, it's the, um, it's the place and we would expect to be at the top. Those, those figures go back to Twitter under its old management, I assume, don't they? So this is yeah, before the Musk takeover. Yeah, so yeah, that's not surprising that there's so many there. Um, the, the NHS and healthcare generally and, and various health regulators and that, that sort of uh, sphere of activity uh, seems to be very, very heavily overrepresented in our data, even given the fact the NHS is such a, a massive gargantuan employer. Um, mm. The glut of cases we have from NHS trusts or from health regulators and um, people in all sorts of medical professions and mental, physical health and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, it's just extraordinary at this time of, of continuing crisis for the NHS um, when the whole thing seems to be creaking into the ground that they're still managers are still spending time enforcing nonsense speech codes on staff and threatening doctors if they don't use the right pronouns for patients and all, all that sort of stuff yeah. that, uh, that that people have come to us concerned about or to expose it's just extraordinary isn't it it is and of course the thing to remember as well and it is important to say this um is that when we look at those at the top of the list uh, a, a lot of that with the NHS, for example, it's a huge organization. So the biggest organizations in the United Kingdom are likely to be the ones that trigger the most cases. But without a doubt, when you marry together the fact that the NHS is, is silver on one of our lists, you know, second down one of our lists, um, with the reality of what you're seeing on the ground, the sort of more anecdotal evidence of why people are having trouble in the NHS, there's a problem. Uh, the other thing that jumps out to me, if I look, drop my eye down to the government and civil service departments, um, uh, uh, league table, naughty list, whatever we call it, is that we've got in bronze and silver place, we've got the cabinet office and the home office. Now, the cabinet office, uh, the permanent secretary of the cabinet office, of course, is the, cab is the cabinet secretary, who is the most senior civil servant, is the head of the civil service. And yet his department, or her department, it is his at the moment, I think, his department is the one right at the top of our list of departments with where we, 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 we've had troubles or we've had people come to us yeah. and say there's a problem. Um, so I find that interesting as well. And, uh, you know, the Home Office, of course, has re responsibility. I might be wrong here. I think it has responsibility for the police. I get very confused as to <laughs> exactly how responsibility for the police is spread around now. But I think it does. Uh, again, Quite an important. Well, we uh, we, we could go on a massive digression um, about the the problem, the fundamental problem of governing the British state in a democratic way, when so much of its decision making is outsourced to to quangos and various agencies, yeah. and the the problem of getting any accountability. Um, so, I mean, that, that's not necessarily a free speech issue, but it does have some ramifications for free speech because it means the 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 feedback mechanism between the voters. Um, and these agencies that are taking taxpayers' money, that that mechanism is completely broken. And that the only way really for those to get those organisations to change course is for whistleblowers or people to be raising concerns um, about policies on 
pronouns or whatever it is or censorship of employees social media that sort of thing that's the sort of bread and butter issue that that, that we might deal with in these sorts of agencies um and that the only way of getting them to change course is for people like that to speak out internally or to raise concerns publicly both of which are not straightforward um and in an ideal world that wouldn't be the only mechanism available you the voter would have some say yeah, no, no, exactly right. But um, that 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 gap between the voter, the ministers at the top, is is just depressingly. It's not just it's big. Not, it's just how do you navigate it? It's not. It's not just that. I mean, that's going to be a problem in any in any democratic system to some extent. But it's the gap between what the minister wants and then what happened, because you have all of these agencies, all of these government agencies who are making decisions. For themselves, as we've seen with the College of Policing, where the Home Secretary says, um, I want you to do more to protect free speech. And the College of Policing basically says, well, no, we don't really fancy that, thanks. And so how how does the voter then influence what the College of Policing wants to do? Yeah. No matter what government we elect, no matter how many letters we write to a minister, there is no mechanism there. And so that just seems to me a fundamental problem in our system. And then that comes back to the importance of the media and 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 you know shining the, the only other light you can shine if, if the government's um stuck, as it were, uh from actually enforcing free speech is to go through the media, but sometimes the pushback from the media is just as tricky to navigate. Uh again, it comes back to that point, I think, that jumps off the page when we look at these these lists of of organizations, how many of them are, you know, well established, much loved. Uh, backbone institutions of the United Kingdom. Um, in, in that, that really was the first thing when I, particularly, I mean, I pulled out universities and I pulled out police forces and I pulled out social media platforms and I pulled out government departments. And then I took a list of what was left. And that was the one that really surprised me because that was the one which suddenly had, you know, the Football Association, the Church of England and, and others on it, which didn't have mm-hmm. their own kind of brethren to put to put them you know i don't have enough churches of england to put them on one big list called churches of england list but i just didn't expect so many of the much loved institutions to pop up on one kind of default other list and uh i found it really jumped out at me ben uh, as a curiosity it shouldn't have been surprising but it, it's very stark when you put them next to each other Apologies to to uh, non science fiction liter- listeners who I might lose for thirty seconds here, but I, I keep thinking of the Borg, Tom from Star Trek, and it seems <laughs> to me that what's happened to these institutions is they've been assimilated, and that they they still outwardly resemble what they were, but their will has been completely subverted by this woke hive mind, um, and that that's what's that's what's happened, um, yeah. which makes life very difficult for the dissenters that the Free Speech Union's helping. Yeah. But I'm going to carry on pulling these stats together. I've, I've found them very interesting, and I think I hope you have as well in the case team, Ben, actually pulling these these stats together. One other stat I thought that it might be interesting for our listeners to hear is that we we added up all of our cases, and we looked at um, the outcome of those cases, and a lot of them are unresolved. So a significant minority of our cases are unresolved. We don't actually, as the Free Speech Union, necessarily get to the point where we know what happened. And that's quite understandable. Someone 
probably quite nervously approaches us and, and we try and help them. And, and sometimes they, they, they kind of think, okay, I don't, I don't need this. I'm moving on. I'm, we don't hear back from them and we don't always know what happened. Mm. So that's quite a number of cases. Um, so we took those out of the, the data for, for looking at the outcome because we don't know what happened. But if we do take the unresolved cases out, then we actually have had a favorable outcome in approximately 70% of our cases. So that I found, again, really quite a compelling statistic. And I, and I think you did as well, Ben, didn't you? And quite, quite a heartening statistic that that is nice to see that happening and the, the impact of the free speech union. I did because we're, we're fighting all these issues on basically what is, is very unfavorable ground. And while we're trying constantly to make the law better, both by knocking back legislation that would uh, infringe on free speech, like the worker protection bill that's recently been defeated, um, or trying to uh, water down or improve legislation like the online safety bill, where that interferes with freedom of speech. So while we're trying to get that big strategic stuff right, mm. um, our day-to-day work helping individual members of the public who have been counselled or who are facing some punishment or investigation from their workplace or university, um, all of that has to be fought on the ground with the law that exists right now. And so I was personally, I have to say, very pleased that we could say that 70 percent, with the caveat you've you've just said, but we can say with 70 percent of people who come to us for help will have a Mm. favourable outcome in their case, i.e. they will get all or most of what they want um, or they will survive with their job intact or their university place um, and they can continue with studies. And that's heartening, you know, I think, in, in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, but, you know, I was looking as well, the last sort of stat I wanted to pull out, uh, Ben, is that we know that the gender and transgender issue has uh, has increased in certainly in proportionate terms since, since 2021 through 2022 and is continuing to increase through 2023, as we've seen over just the last week. Not all of those are our cases, but we can just get that sense. But also... Um, Half of our cases, more than half of our cases, relate either to working conditions or studying conditions. And that's not a surprise, but it's coming down a bit. So we have seen sort of 61% of our cases related to working and studying conditions. That's dropped down to 52% of our cases. But that, that begs the question, what's what's on the increase? And uh, what's on the increase? Sadly, the one that worries me the most and the early um, signs that, that are slightly worrying, Ben, are that state intervention as an issue seems to be uh, increasing. That was the one that really jumped out at me. Now, some of that could be NCHI-related call-outs where we've asked for people to come and approach us with NCH, sorry, NCHI being non-crime hate incidents, which we talked about before. Um, uh, and so some of that increase in state intervention cases may relate to uh, some of our call-outs for, in, for for folks who've been affected by non-crime hate incidents. But it's just something I want to keep an eye on, Ben, that one. Yeah. And state intervention, we should say, is our umbrella category for um, everything from being arrested and charged or to the police knocking on your door to check your thinking. Um, yeah. So... But yeah, yeah I'd certainly... I certainly wanted to back up what you said, Ben, there, that maybe the reason it's favourable is a very good sign for hope because the 70% of our cases are favourable is a very good sign for hope because that means we can work within the law to protect free speech still. 
The law is still there's sufficiently there's a sufficient amount of law out there that is relatively sane that enables us to push back. Um, so you know that 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 is where we are as of today, and and absolutely highlights that the issue the importance of the legislative work that we do to try and push back on anything in the law that's coming to the statute books or is proposed to go on the statute books that will that will reduce um freedom of expression in the united kingdom um so yeah i i thought i thought that was really interesting there's there's lots more in the data i'm going to carry on looking at it and i'm every quarter we're going to update it and probably provide an update on any of these underlying trends that we're seeing um uh so yeah do 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 stay tuned for that. Um, but anything else you wanted to add, Ben? Yes, we have two guests who will be appearing in episodes later this month. Uh, one of our colleagues from the Free Speech Union will be joining us next week. And then the week after that, we will be joined by Matt Johnson, who is the author of How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment. So I think that would be a fascinating conversation with Matt about Christopher Hitchens, about his legacy uh, perhaps about what he would make of the current cultural malaise and mess we're all in about the the great awakening. Um, I think it'd be fascinating. Uh, so that will be in a couple of weeks' time. I, I, I'm really excited about that, Ben. That um, wondering what Christopher Hitchens would say about 2023 is something that uh, I've been doing a lot of. So I'm really looking forward to that. Well, I think that's all. Uh, we will... I was about to say, we'll see you next time. We won't. You will hear us next time. If you have any comments or questions, feedback, anything you'd like us to discuss, ping us an email. We're always happy to hear from you. Um, And speak soon. And join the Free Speech Union. Our prices begin at £2.49 a month. Uh, And if you need help in a situation in your university or you'd like to promote freedom of expression via your student society or some other project that you you're cooking up, you can apply for an award from the McTaggart programme. Uh, details available via our website. <laughs>